man who usually leads music said I can't lead so I haven't been up there with a guitar in a very very long time I try to avoid doing that for various reasons one is you've got a lot of other things on my mind on, on a Sunday morning as well as uh, the person who I'd asked to pray his whole family is sick as well this morning so we got a text this morning I'm not gonna be there in the process of all that I typically put on this microphone here so I can wander when I speak I've not had a chance to get to it quite yet. I'll see if I can just stay here in the meantime. So give me your grace as we get ourselves together here. I got my little clicker. I'll go get that as well. But if you want to, in the meantime, we're looking at the book of James, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Some of you may have brought your own Bibles. It's great. You can find it in there. If you didn't, in front of you, there is a Bible, a black Bible. And I... I think it's 1179. I didn't look again. Okay. 1198. You can find that. This is James chapter 4. Verses 13 through 17. If you do have that children's worship bulletin and you're a kid here this morning uh, and you want to show me that you were taking notes and paying attention, fill that out. Come on up at the end and show me. I'll be happy to see what you got there. Okay, James chapter 4, 13 to 17. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is the word of God you know, James as a whole here seems to be talking about what he's been saying really throughout the entire book of James. So the, the title for this morning is Beware of Practical Atheism. And you see that working out here. Now, atheism is a worldview that says there is no God. And that's something that, that many people believe. And uh, people live consistently sometimes with their worldviews. If you don't believe there's a God, he doesn't factor into any decisions that you might make along the way. Decisions about the future, decisions about who you're going to marry, decisions about job. God is completely out of the picture, and that would be consistent if you believe that there is no God. James in this whole book, and I think especially in this passage, though, is pressing us because he says, hey, what about you, you scattered tribes of Israel, you people who say you're followers of God, are you really living life consistently? Or are you living out something that might be called practical atheism? He's not figuring into the decisions that you make. Your plans for the future are devoid of considering who God is and how he is speaking to that. And James is saying, don't do that. By definition, all of life, if you're a follower of God, needs to be informed by that reality. And for those to whom James is writing, it, it simply isn't. So he's confronting them about how to bring their life into alignment with that reality. You're making your plans. 
without reference to God. And the focus instead is your plans and your profit without consideration about God himself. And there's nothing more to that than really what we call practical atheism. Living as if there's no God. Uh, Binks Bowling, some of you may not recognize that name. He was the protagonist in a 1961 Walker Walker Piercy novel, The Movie Maker. He said this, 100% of people are humanists and 98% believe in God. A little bit of a jaded perspective there, but he says, a lot of people are saying they believe in God, but you're living like a humanist, somebody who doesn't factor him into any of your life choices. You know, kids, I'm glad you're here this morning because we got a lot to learn from you. Most of us adults think we are wise, and we do. We've, we are wise. Wise in the sense that we've got collected knowledge, and that's absolutely true. We've talked about wisdom here before. But there's a lot that we learn from you kids as well. Jesus said if you want to get a picture of faith, look at a child. Look at how a child. Well, what's he talking about? The trust that a child has that somebody's going to provide for him or for her. So when I look at you kids, I learn about what it means to have faith in Jesus because you're trusting. And here's what happens when we start getting stuff in life. And some of that stuff, of course, is you, kids, as well. You're more than stuff. You're important to us. And we feel the weight of responsibility. And you, who maybe trust parents to provide and to protect and to give, we're the ones who've grown up now, and we have a father as well, and we begin to doubt whether he's going to do the same thing. So Jesus says, look at kids. Look at how they trust, because he knows that as we start gathering things, we start thinking about in good ways, how we can protect, but maybe how we can get more and more. And God starts factoring out of the equation. We forget what it means to have simple trust in God. So I'm grateful for you kids. And if we had to give another title to this, since we got all relevant last week and did the Twitter stuff, I would say hashtag God's will not mine is really what we're talking about. Now last week, James kind of did this whole putting off, putting on thing. That's sort of what he does. The Bible does a lot of that. Don't do this. Instead, do this. Last week, he said, don't speak down to each other, literally from the Greek. Instead, you're supposed to build each other up. And here, there's a putting off. I'm saying don't live as a practical atheist. Instead, pursue God's will, not mine. Why would we say that? Why is it that James is saying your plans need to factor God into everything? Well, he says, first off, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in verse 14. You see that? Today or tomorrow, we'll go to the city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. In other words, we have extremely limited control. Enter weather forecasts. Right? I mean, it amazes me. I know it's a complex world we live in, but for all that we can do, we still don't know what the weather is going to be like. I, I don't know, some of you, if you grab your app and you'll look at Mason, Ohio, and it says it's currently raining, and it's sunny outside. Has that ever happened to you? We have limited control. We think we have more than we actually do. But James is saying, if you're not factoring God, why would you do that? You don't even know what happens we have no idea. If you're living in times that are safe and secure, we get this kind of lulled sense of things. Now, if you remember 9-11, and some of you have lived through much greater tragedies at greater length of time, imagine being in Syria 
It's impossible to imagine where 9-11 feels like it's happening every day. There was, our foundations were shaken. Out of curiosity, how many of you were not alive when 9-11 happened? 2001, raise your hands. Nice and high. So about half of you, at least. But your whole, our whole world, at least living in this nation, was redefined by that moment. And if you remember when you were there, probably remember where you were, what you felt like. People were flooding into churches because we felt so insecure. And we didn't know what was going to happen. We have no idea what will happen tomorrow. We just don't. So there's a presumption, right? It's the sin of presumption to say, here's what we're going to go to do tomorrow without factoring God into the equation. We just don't know. It's a form of pride that he was addressing at the beginning of this chapter as well. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, and people get together and say, we're going to build our way to God because everything's going well. Times are prosperous. The stock market was roaring. And God says, you know what? I oppose the proud. And he destroyed what they were doing. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And James goes on to say, not only do you not know what will happen tomorrow, but frankly, your life is short. You're just like a vapor or a mist. You who are planning, you don't know, even if you'll be here, because your life is just such a short span. Our time is limited, and that might actually give us a sense of urgency. We need to plan to make the best of our time. But James is using it to contrast us as creatures with God who is the creator. Psalm 90, which we sang uh, a little bit from, uh, goes like this in the first six verses. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, your God. You turned people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that's gone by, or like a watch in the night, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, and the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and it is withered. So this is Moses the only psalm that we know that he wrote. And he's got a certain view of time. He lived a nice long life, had lots of things happen. But he's contrasting here man and God. And one of the things he says about God is that he's eternal. He's a dwelling place for all generations in verse 1. In all of verse 2, before the mountains were born, you brought forth the earth from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. He always has been. He always will be. In him all things hold together. There never was a time when he was not. A thousand years to God? Just like a watch in the night. The same is true of the Son, the Alpha, the Omega, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and Son throughout time. Some of you know Friedrich Nietzsche. I remember seeing a bumper sticker some time ago. Uh, he was the guy who famously said what? What did he say about God? God is dead. So I saw a little bumper sticker that said Nietzsche is dead. God was making the quote <laughs> in that case. Uh, Nietzsche died August 25, 1900. God is God eternally. And it, 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 irrespective of whether somebody believes or he doesn't cease to exist because you don't believe. If he is God, he always has been, he always will be. He's, we come and go. We live in the dash. We'll have a born and a death date, but not God. Not only is he eternal, but he's omnipotent. 
all-powerful. You brought forth the earth, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, your God. This recalls sections like Isaiah 40 where he declares, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales or the hills in a balance? Lift your eyes to the heavens who created all these. Who brings out the starry host one by one? He calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Provides perspective which we sometimes get a glimpse of in nature. If you've ever been in a situation where you feel incredibly tiny and out of control in the midst of a storm, a violent storm of some of you have been through a hurricane or a tornado and we're rushing for shelter and safety because we know it can pick us up and fly us off. And God holds the very universe in the palm of his hand. He's omnipotent. He's sovereign as well in verse 3. You turn men back to dust. You sweep away men in the sleep of death. Mar Moses argues that just as God brings forth life, so he numbers our days. Just as he causes mountains to be born, so he appoints human lives to pass away. And he's self-sufficient as well. Kids, what about you? You think you're self-sufficient? Do you need snacks on a regular basis? Yeah, you do. You need sleep. One of my kids claimed he or she never slept. We observed that was not the case. <laughs> Thankfully. We, we need things. We are contingent beings. We, we exist only because somebody else has given us the stuff that we need and we've got air to breathe in and food that strengthens us. But what about God? He's self-sufficient. He is from everlasting to everlasting, regardless of what men may think or do. He does not need to go to the pantry to get some food. So he's the best place to go for refuge. That's why he's a dwelling place through all generations. That's why Moses starts there for our perspective on time. A God who's eternal, powerful, sovereign, and self-sufficient. But this psalm, which relates to James, as we'll see in a moment, contrasts God with man. And you've probably already got some of this already, just moving on. Because the contrast is that man is fleeting. Men are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it's withered and dry. I know some of you have experienced profound loss of life in the past months or years as well. You become aware of this more as you age, of course. Whereas experiences bring you close to death, my first encounter with death was at age six, where my best friend was shot and killed in an accident. And uh, my parents had to come and say she wasn't around anymore. First girl that I kissed. <laughs> On the cheek. <laughs> they came back and said, Laura died. And the illusion of youth is that we'll be here forever. Kids, you think you're going to be here forever. But that illusion will fade in a relatively short time. We're frail. We're fleeting. And we're frail. God's powerful and omnipotent, but man is frail. Return to dust, O sons of men. Adam, made from the dust, we're bones and flesh. We go old and weak. We get sick. We need medicine. We injure ourselves doing all kinds of things. Diving for balls and cutting up zucchini for dinner. 
We can't create mountains. We can't hold back the sea or a tornado. God is sovereign, but man lacks control. We can't prevent catastrophes. As many pills as you can take, as many approaches, homeopathic or whatever. Death can't be avoided. We don't know what each day will bring. We can't always protect our children. We don't always get the job we want. We're not sovereign. God is self-sufficient, but we're not. We're dependent. We're contingent beings. We need others. We need our mother's wombs. We need nurturing. We need affirmation. We need food. We need sleep. We have constant needs. Have you ever realized how needy we are? It never stops. As soon as you're hungry, you just get hungry again and again and again, which I think is a really wonderful design because I love food. And yet we still need it all the time. You know, you get your first job and you start going to Chipotle all the time and it's great for a while. It gets expensive though. You go to mom and dad for some gas money or something. They're like, no. You do it, you work a job, where's your money? Chipopo took it all. I mean, we have constant needs. It's an amazing contrast, isn't it, to God? R.C. Sproul said, Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they've contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. You just, we just don't see it. We are talking about prison ministry earlier, right? There's a place typically where people see their need. And that's one of the reasons people tend to respond to the good news of Christ. You won't respond until you see your need. You just won't. Because we are selfish and prideful. And we have the illusion that we're going to be all the things that Moses says about God. And it's not true. Time will tell. You don't have to make a decision at that point. Am I going to trust in something beyond myself or continue with the same program? And James here is saying, you know what? You guys who all come to church, you all have said that you follow God, you trust he's eternal, he provides for our needs, he's self-sufficient, he's sovereign, and you act completely different. If you remember, he's taking that globe off of the shelf, the little snow globe we talked about, I think, the very first week, and he's shaking it up because that's where we see the beauty. In the trials of life that you may be facing, do you think God is not present? James is saying he is. When you're trying to get through the difficult times, are you factoring, you're running to God, saying, I don't understand, I don't get this, but I know you're at work here. I'm trusting like a child. I'm doing the things that you've told me to do, and I may not be able to see it, but I'm not making plans without presenting them to you. And that's what he says. And instead of doing all this other stuff, just trust in God's plans in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, and this isn't formulaic. It could be if it helps you. And what I mean is you don't have to say, if the, if the Lord wills for everything, let's go, you know, to Chipotle now if the Lord wills. Okay, I'll go with you if the Lord wills. I mean, it's a mentality. It's an idea that is framing everything, recognizing we just don't know unless God is in, factored into this. It's, a, it's a, a posture. 
if the Lord wills, we'll do this. And we need to understand the first two points, really, to get this last one about who we are. Until we understand how little we can control and how brief our life is, we just won't rely on a God who is eternal. And listen, for those maybe who reject God, what hope is there? This is the great hope of the gospel. There is a God who's good. We've sung about it and his goodness. And the brokenness sometimes you may wonder, obviously. But there's a time when he'll tie all that together. And the invitation is to know this God and to say yes to him. And you can start saying, if the Lord wills in your life, now look, I don't know how many of you find Midwest weather great. I mean, this, the winters are really rough uh, in general. I, I grew up out west in the mountains, and, uh, and I, I miss that at times. Pretty flexible with where I live, but you know, most people who move here, and especially if you move from a place like California, like the Midals did recently, you say, why? <laughs> why, why did you move here? What's... What's wrong with you or, and God called them here as he would shift all of you. We believe Acts 17 says he's determined the exact places for you to live. It's no mistake that you're here. You might feel like it is, but it's not. God is shifting and moving. He's brought you here for a purpose. There's one pastor uh, actually at a very large church in, in Illinois. And he says, when my family and I moved from Southern California to Illinois, we underwent an understandably difficult adjustment. This was especially hard for my wife. We left a church that we'd founded. Not only were our families left behind, but friends from 15 years of ministry. We'd expected to spend our lives at the church, to have our daughters married there, to be surrounded by old friends at life's big events, some of whom had known us from childhood. We never thought we would move ever, but we did. And the passage that gave my wife greatest joy and wisdom was, come now. You say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will, will tomorrow will bring, if the Lord wills. I'm just trying to show that that you know practically speaking, this this isn't just some dry, dusty book that's spinning theology out there. It applies to life, like a move. I know some of you are wondering. Some of you have moved. Why, what's going on here? This is what the Lord wills, as mysterious as it might be. It doesn't deny some of the hard things. But isn't it a comfort to know that? That God, God's got this. That the Lord so wills. Interesting, in verse 17, if you're looking, it seems like it's out of place a little bit, this verse here. Now James mentions, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And it would seem in the context that James is saying, hey, all this stuff I'm talking about, do this. Apply this. If you don't do this, it's actually sin to you. If you want to walk in a way pleasing to God, then apply this stuff. Use this if the Lord wills. There's a broader application to that as well, but that seems to be in view. So what are we saying here? Three hashtags for you. You can pick one that works maybe for you. Hashtag no practical atheism. Hashtag life is short. Hashtag God's will, not mine. 
I think this is framed with respect to where you might be at work, if you want to be married but you're not, um, or a certain job or a school, wherever you may be, that you just approach this like, like David did in that psalm that's out there. Unless the Lord builds a house, it's builders labor in vain. And we started Redeemer uh, over five years ago now. That was the verse that I had at the top of my prayer card, which I've misplaced at this time. This was the verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, it is easy to forget. And I'll tell you this as a pastor as well, who's supposed to be living, factoring God into all equations. It's very easy to bear the burden of church growth and relationships and feel like it's up to me. I suspect that may be the same for you parents or children, siblings, students, whatever the case may be. But you got to be aware of that. That's practical atheism. If you are saying yes to this worldview that there is a God, then you've been designed to live that out in all of life, no matter where it may be. That's a law that God has written into our hearts. And as we've seen before in James, this is the law that gives freedom. This is a very freeing mentality to have. If the Lord wills, then we'll do it. Now, Father, 